Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Number five. I'll back up a little bit for the sake of context. Verse 5. A man who was there had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he'd already been there a long time in that condition. He said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up your pallet and walk. Father, we do thank you that uh, even on a day, Lord, where many of us feel sorrow about the passing of Mitch, uh, there's also joy, Lord knowing that truly we are the ones to be pitied who are left down here. And I just pray, Father, that we would just uh, keep that in mind, be with Tammy and the family, and uh, just let us be Christ to them. Bless your word today, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For the record, the statement, God helps those who help themselves, is not in the Bible. In fact, it originated in pagan religion. 500 years before Christ, Aesop wrote, the gods help them that help themselves. Euripides, a Greek philosopher, said, try first thyself and after call on God. And George Herbert of the 17th century said, Help thyself, and God will help thee. We received our present formulation from Benjamin Franklin, who said, God helps those who help themselves. That sounds great, but in actuality, the statement is an enemy of grace. And if Franklin believed that, it contributed to his rejection of the gospel. As a deist, Franklin was a firm believer in God and divine providence, but he could not accept the deity of Christ. He was a close friend of the great evangelist George Whitfield, who pleaded with people to repent and to believe the gospel. But despite a warm and mutually helpful friendship lasting 30 years, Franklin wrote these words after Whitfield died. He wrote, Whitfield used to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. And as death approached, Franklin saw no reason to believe, since he said he would know shortly whether it was true or not. What I want us to see is, Whether we can help ourselves depends 
on what our problem is. If our most pressing problem is ignorance, we can help ourselves by getting an education. If we are drowning, we just might be able to struggle to safety or a lifeguard might be able to rescue us. But unfortunately, our problem is far greater than all of these. When it comes to the biggest issues in life, we are unable to control them. If you are powerless, you have a God-sized problem, and there are some things that only God can do. We're going to see a picture of that this morning. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, we left off in verse 3, where Jesus has come to the pool of Bethesda, where we read, And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. This is where we'll pick up our account. We addressed the condition of the people last time. So now we need to deal with the moving of the water, which leads us right into verse 4 where we are told, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, that whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. This seems like a very strange story, doesn't it? If you listen to commentators, you will get a wide variety of interpretations. I'll give you the one I think fits best, not only with this passage, but with the Bible as a whole. The pool was apparently fed by an intermittent spring, and people imagined that its waters had healing powers. Thus, it would seem that the stirring of the water was due to the occasional eruption of that underground spring. Not only that, ancient sources indicate that the water in the pool had a reddish tint from the minerals that were in it. But doesn't the text say an angel came down, you ask? Yes, but I believe that is a quote and not a statement of fact. You see, the Greek text does not include, as we have, quotation marks. If it did, I believe this phrase would be enclosed in them as a reference to the conventional wisdom of that day. I just don't think the interpretation about the angel fits with what we know about man's need and God's grace. And this is why I think that. Tradition said the first one in the pool after the water was stirred would be healed. And isn't that what the law, religion, and man's regulations always say? Be the first. Be the best. Try harder. Fight your way to the top. Or God helps those who help themselves. Can you even imagine the mad scramble to the water every time it bubbled up? But here's the thing. The people who probably needed the healing the most were the least able to make it to the water. It was ultra competitive for the fastest and most astute person was the one who got in. Now let me ask you. 
Does that sound like how God does things? Do you think God would give healing to whoever the fastest Jew was on any given day? Do you really think they could get spiritual healing by getting their flesh cleansed? I think this is a great illustration of the error of Jesus' day. Often in John, water, like the six stone water pots given for purification in chapter 2, are given as a picture. Because water is often a picture of the Old Testament system that gave a physical cleansing as an illustration of what needed to take place spiritually. The result is the law of God had now been reduced to just a bunch of commands. Which means, if you work the hardest, God would be pleased and you can meet his requirements by your own good works. Or to put it another way, if I can get to the pool before you, God would be more pleased with me than he was with you. Now, you're going to have to take the next thing that I say purely by faith. I used to be an athlete. It shouldn't have been that funny. So I think I could have at least beat at least some of you to the pool. And the ones that I couldn't have beat, I would have just tripped. The sad thing is, there are a multitude of people today who still believe this. If you will just follow a set of rules by trying to obey the Ten Commandments, they believe that if you're good enough and competitive enough, that God will take you to heaven. It's like the bumper sticker that I sometimes see, where it says, Obey the Ten Commandments. Listen, I appreciate the desire and even the effort. But the problem is, no one can perfectly obey them. And if that is your only hope, you are doomed. God gave us the Ten Commandments not so we could prove that we could obey them, but in fact, it's just the opposite. Don't believe me? Listen to Paul in Galatians 3.21. He writes, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. What does that passage teach us? The law was given precisely to show us we could not keep it and thus prove our need for a Savior. And in our passage, to whom will Jesus come? Not to those closest to the edge of the pool, but to the one who was clear at the back and furtherest out of the way. He came not to the aggressor, the initiator, or the leader, but to the one who was the least competitive of them all. Look at verse 5 with me. 
Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? This man has been in a paralyzed condition for 38 years. Let me read to you the words of Deuteronomy 2.14. In the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zared was 38 years. Until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. John noted that the man had been ill for 38 years. Perhaps he saw in this a picture of his own Jewish nation that had also wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. Spiritually speaking, just like the paralyzed man, Israel was a nation of impotent people waiting hopelessly for something to happen. We read that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in the condition for a long time, and yet he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The Lord's question seems strange to our ears. I mean, obviously, the man wanted to be cured or he would not have been at the pool in the first place. He may have even initially thought this rabbi, who he did not know, was trying to play a cruel joke on him. In fact, in one ancient manuscript, the man actually replies to Jesus with these words, Are you trying to trick me? Silly rabbi, tricks are for kids. I just made that up. Please don't include it in your notes. But Jesus never engaged in flippant or idle conversation. His question served several purposes. It captured the man's attention, focused on his need, and then offered him healing. And also communicated to him the depth of Christ's love and concern. The difference with Jesus is he actually had the power to heal this man. But here's the sad part. Very often people who do not possess this kind of power ask people the exact same question. But usually they don't have the authority to actually heal them. This, of course, has been and continues to be abused by charlatans preying on the desperation of sick and desperate people. Some television and radio, radio preachers promise that healing is always available for every Christian believer. But I ask you, if that were true, need any Christian wear eyeglasses grow bald, or, so, or show any other signs of aging. A combination of disease and lowered cellular efficiency is leading each of us, including every faith healer, towards death. And no amount of prayer and faith is going to reverse that process. 
This is all part of the curse that came from the fall of man, of which, unfortunately, we are all a part of. I want to make it abundantly clear this morning that a sick person is not unspiritual. In his book, Where is God When It Hurts?, Philip Yancey writes, Unlike many television evangelists, the Apostle Paul seemed to expect from the Christian life not health and wealth, but a measure of suffering. He told Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. And Christian faith does not magically equip us with a germ-free, hermetically sealed spacesuit to protect us against the dangers of earth. That would insulate us from complete identification with the world, which is a luxury God did not even allow his own son. To hold out the inducement that becoming a Christian will guarantee you health and prosperity, while that is the very argument advanced by Satan in the book of Job and decisively refuted. That is so true. And I would like to add to that this morning. I find it compelling that in 2 Timothy 4.20, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left sick in Miletus. Now knowing the type A confrontational personality of Paul, if it were a sin or a lack of faith on the part of Trophimus, the next verse would have read, I pleaded with him to confess his sin and to claim his healing, but being stiff-necked, he refused to do so. I, Paul, found this to be appalling. Get it? Paul found it appalling. It doesn't matter. The point is, this would be the perfect opportunity for Paul to rebuke this man for his sickness, but he does not. Let me ask you, if I taught such things, how do you think Mitch and Tammy Davis would have felt? What if every time we visited, instead of loving them, we berated them for their lack of faith? The prosperity doctrine is only good theoretically, but it consistently fails miserably in real life. But what about all these big healing services you see to where all these people get up out of their wheelchairs and run across the stage? I hate to break this to you, but a lot, and I mean a lot, of those guys are wolves. And those supposed crippled people are very often paid staff members, and in fact, no one is really getting healed. Do you think I'm being too cynical? Part of my calling as a pastor is given in 2 Timothy 4 where it reads, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Let me tell you a story about Dr. William Dembski. Dr. Dembski is a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
by all accounts. He's a godly man and a wonderful conservative Christian scholar. His theology is rock solid. Dr. Dembski is married with three children, two of whom are seven-year-old twins. But one of the twin boys is severely autistic. Now, many of you here are parents, and as a parent, there is no more helpless feeling than when your child is sick. I can't imagine what it would be like to be told that your child has a disease like autism, or to be told that your child is actually dying. Out of that helplessness, a parent will do anything if there is any chance of it restoring their child. That is what Dr. Dembski did. Contrary to his theology, contrary to his reasoning and logic, and contrary to everything he had taught, he packed up his family, drove 130 miles, and went to a Todd Bentley service in Denton, Texas. In his mind, he knew that God had the power to heal. He knew that God still can heal. But in his helpless desperation, he reached out to Bentley as a possible avenue of God's healing. Of course, he was disappointed. As his wife took their seven-year-old severely autistic boy forward for healing, they were turned away after waiting for over an hour. In Dr. Dembski's words, our son was refused prayer twice because... He didn't look the part. And even those who looked the part seemed to look no better after Bentley's prayer. He finishes by saying, The exodus from the arena of people still bound in wheelchairs was poignant. But Todd Bentley is not the only one. Perhaps the most famous so-called healer in our generation is Benny Hinn. Several years ago, a girl came on stage who was actually a plant from the show Inside Edition who claimed to have cancer. Hen pronounced her healed. Later, Hen was confronted by Inside Edition about her and him being a fraud. God did not tell Hen she was not being truthful, nor did God correct him when he pronounced her as he always does, that she was healed when in fact... She wasn't even sick. Yet Hen has claimed that he sees the Lord in his crusades and he is in fact in constant communication with him. The fact is that Hen never checks out anyone who claims to be healed. He trusts their feelings to give them the stage for their testimony. Also, the staff screen people before they come up on the stage to give their testimony. What the cameras never show is all the people in wheelchairs or who are hooked up to IVs who are never allowed to even approach that stage. So the question is, is anyone ever truly healed at these gatherings? Maybe. Maybe God in his abundant mercy heals people despite false prophets. But please listen very closely. 
Even if someone seems to have the power to heal people, that does not always make them a person God is actually using. Now, why would I say that? Because it seems the devil is also given some limited power to heal people. Listen to these words out of Revelation 13.3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Sound familiar? Just because a person may be healed doesn't always mean that that came from God. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 where he writes, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Or how about in Exodus 7, where Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to duplicate some of the miracles that God was using Moses and Aaron to perform. It says they did this by their enchantments. Or one, one version uses the term by their black arts. All I'm saying is, we have to be careful not to accept every so-called ministry, even if what they are doing is supernatural in nature. The litmus test for any ministry is not signs and wonders. It is instead, is the doctrine they espouse lining up with the word of God. Look at verse 7 with me. Jesus asked him if he wants to be made well, and here's the man's reply. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Every time I try to get up, someone else gets there first. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. You're just about to get a break in a business or in a relationship, but someone comes along and beat you to it. Now you who possibly like me have a tendency to be competitive, please note the fact that Jesus was not interested in helping the lame man be the first one into the pool. Instead, his purpose was to take him out of the competition altogether. Spurgeon wrote, It is not your goodness that will ensure an answer to your prayer, it is the greatness of your need. Even if you have sunk very low in your own esteem, till not a ray of hope seems left to you, and you are shut up in the blackest darkness of despair, that is the very time for you to pray, even as the psalmist said, Out of the depths I have cried out unto you, O Lord. Jesus knew about the man and asked him if he wanted to be healed. You would have thought the man would have responded with an enthusiastic, Yes, I want to be healed. But instead, he begins to make excuses. Perhaps he had been in that sad condition for so long that his will was as paralyzed as his body. Hudson Taylor gives us this great insight. 
Many Christians estimate difficulties in the light of their own resources and thus attempt little and often fail in the little that they attempt. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power and presence with them. Please notice with me that he is intending to answer Jesus' question, but he really doesn't answer it. And what this man does is fascinating to me. He answers a question that Jesus didn't ask him. His answer goes with a different question, and this is the question. Why haven't you been made well? But Jesus didn't ask him, why haven't you been made well? Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? And just like that man, we as believers can have the tendency to complicate things. Now, in fairness to him, I can only imagine that if I had been laying there for 38 years, I also probably would have lost hope of ever being made well. I'm sure for the first few weeks and maybe even months, I would have had at least some degree of hope of somehow making it to the pool first. But over the years, I'm sure this man's hope has diminished to the point that he probably just spit out the answer. I don't have anybody to help me to get into the pool in time. Like many people, his expectations of what Jesus could do for him were limited to what he believed was possible. Of course, this also is nothing new. Sarah's reaction to the news that she would give birth to a son in her old age is a good example. She knew that her husband was very old and that she herself was past the age of childbearing, so her first reaction was to laugh. But God confronted her about that laugh. Not because she laughed in God's presence, but because her laughter expressed a limiting view of God that was a denial of his power. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Sarah laughed at God's promise because she doubted that it was possible. And she doubted it was possible because her conception of God was too small. As we finish up this morning, there's a great little book by J.B. Phillips entitled, Your God is Too Small, if you're looking for something to read. It's been over 25 years since I've read it, so the only thing I can remember about it was I liked it a lot. You can get it on Amazon for $9.16. As many books as I recommend on Amazon, they really should give me some kind of commission. It's not like they can't afford it. That's what you call a rabbit trail, by the way. But commenting on this, not the rabbit trail, but us making God too small, Os Guinness writes, The same problem of shrunken faith showed up in the attitudes of many who approached Jesus for help. Very few came with a complete understanding of who he was, so their faith was correspondingly weak. 
A leper once begged Jesus for help. If only you will, said the man, you can cleanse me. At another time, the father of a demented son pleaded, But if it is all possible for you, take pity upon us and help us. Guinness writes, Notice the difference in each appeal. The leper saw no problem in trusting Jesus' power. It was Jesus' compassion he was unsure of. His appeal could be expressed, I know you could if you would, but you probably won't. The father, on the other hand, was unsure of Jesus' power, and it's almost as if he says, I know you would if you could, but you probably can't. You know, we all have to be careful to avoid both of those camps. We're going to see next week that Jesus does indeed heal this man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. I hope you leave here this morning knowing that Jesus does have the power to heal anything, and we should always ask him for healing. But this morning, Mitch Davis is the one who is pitying those of us now on the other side of the veil. But if it is his will that we undergo suffering or sickness, we should never doubt his power or his concern. Instead, if we say we want to be like Jesus, we should pray the same prayer that he prayed in the garden the night before he endured the most excruciating death that any person has ever went through. Did you know that that word excruciating comes from two Latin words? And it literally means out of the cross. Always remember, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with any suffering that we may endure. We'll come back next week and we'll see the difference between a religion and a relationship. And Father, I do thank you. I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank that it stands forever in eternity. And everything that you wrote to the Christian is yes and amen, no matter what the outcome is in any of our circumstances. I pray that as we leave here this morning, Lord, that you would take the words from your, from your scripture and just let them take just deep and abiding root in every heart represented here and draw us to yourself. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This being the first Sunday, I'd ask Pastor John and uh, Elder Steve to come up for communion.